starting at Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 28, it says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, and there is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Amen. That last verse particularly is familiar to many of us. We actually used to sing it as a chorus in church when I was a kid. Amen. But under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, the prophet Isaiah is writing of the greatness of God in this chapter and how God is able to restore and to keep his people. He speaks of providing power and strength to those who need it. And then he mentions that the youth will faint and grow weary and that the young men will also eventually fall or become exhausted. Don't believe that's a coincidence that those two, the youth and the young men, are deliberately chosen as examples because they are normally pictures of natural strength and energy, stamina and endurance. And what the prophet is telling us is that this natural strength is not enough. You're not going to get the job done. You're not going to see the will of God accomplished through your own strength and abilities. But those who wait upon the Lord, those who trust in the Lord can find a strength that is actually renewed or replenished as we go along. They are then able to run without getting weary and they can walk and not be exhausted. And he also said in verse 31 that they can mount up or they can soar like an eagle. And with the help of the Lord this morning, I'm going to be teaching and preaching on learning to fly learning to fly. To get into a plane, fly somewhere nowadays is not that unusual. This year it's not been happening as much as perhaps normal, but it's not a rare thing for someone to get into a plane and go here or there. But it wasn't always that way. The Wright brothers, who many of you will know that name, Orville and Wilbur, are usually spoken of when there's a conversation about men learning to fly, although there are suggestions that there were other people involved who may have actually achieved that goal before they did. It's, what happened in history has a lot to do with who wrote history. So, you know, it has a lot to do with who's, who's writing the details. So, but generally speaking, the Wright brothers are considered to have been one of the early pioneers of man being able to fly. And the, the picture on our title slide is actually one of the brothers in, the, in a very early test flight. And uh, as understanding has progressed, the development of all kinds of aircraft have progressed with it to the point that today, and some of you will have seen these online, I don't know that anybody here has actually tried this, but there are now things called wingsuits, which is an outfit that people wear like a giant jumpsuit and when they stretch out their arms and their legs, there are wings like, fa- like pieces of fabric similar, I guess, to parachute kind of material. Never tried it, not planning on doing it soon. And they jump off cliffs or mountains spread their arms and legs, and use the principles of flight to glide. 
The current record that I was able to find is up to a distance of more than 28 kilometers. Just you in a giant plastic bag with your arms and legs stuck out, flying through the air. Terrifying, but probably quite an adrenaline rush at the same time. Not something you want to go wrong. The prophet Isaiah, when he spoke about mounting up with wings as eagles, obviously wasn't talking to us about human flight or men becoming birds. But he was writing about being able to overcome the challenges of our human condition and to allow, allow God to empower us. Now I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7 and verse 18. We're going to read uh, a passage here. Um, but before we read that, so just turn to Romans seven eighteen and put your finger in there. I want to just consider some of the previous chapters to, to help us really get the context. If you, you take the time to go back and particularly read chapters uh, 5 and 6, or 6 particularly, there are some things that are important to our message this morning. The first is that in chapter 6, Paul makes it very clear that even though grace is available to the church, that we are saved by grace, that grace is not a license to sin or to live in whatever fashion suits us. He says something on the lines of, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. The fact that God has extended his grace to us does not mean that, well, I can just, it's just some get out of jail free card. I'll just live however I like and just flash the grace card and everything will be okay. He said, no, no, he's that, that's completely a false understanding. In chapter 6, he reminds the church that we are actually to be dead to sin or that the sinful lifestyle that we used to live in and practice needs to be a thing of the past. It needs to be finished. He goes on to say that we have actually been buried with Christ. Obviously, that's symbolic. We weren't physically buried. But we have been buried with Christ in baptism. And we, we baptized two men on Wednesday night in Jesus' name, which was wonderful. And we have been buried with Christ in baptism. And he, he goes on to say, don't be involved in unrighteous behavior, but be involved in doing what pleases God. And in chapter 6, he also says, whoever or whatever that you yield yourselves to, whatever you surrender yourself to, you become the servant of that thing. So whoever you choose to surrender to, you then become the servant of that. So you will either surrender your life to God and righteousness and holiness, or you will surrender yourself to sin and uncleanness and iniquity or wickedness. That's basically how it is. You either choose to surrender to God or you surrender to sin. And then in the beginning of chapter 7, leading up to where we're going to read from, Paul writes of how Israel was in a covenant relationship. Now, most of you understand what I mean by that, but a covenant relationship is a contract or a binding agreement. Israel, as a nation, was in a binding agreement with God. And he draws an example or a parallel. He says that this covenant was like a marriage relationship in that it was supposed to be until death do us part, which is something that a lot of us pledge to do when we get married, but maybe find it a little harder to keep doing after we get married. And this relationship that God was in with Israel included the law of God, which we know they received from Moses. And the law of God tells us all the things that were good in the sight of God and all the things that were sinful in the sight of God. I'm trying to take some time because I want 
I don't want to leave us behind or I want to be clear when I'm, when I'm teaching. So we understand that, but knowing, knowing what was wrong, humanity, when we, when humanity found out that God said all of these things are wrong, you would think that that would mean we will stay away from those things. But because humanity is afflicted with a sinful nature, because we are broken, it actually had the opposite effect. It actually became what some people call the law of the forbidden fruit. In other words, now that you've been told you shouldn't do something, your carnal nature is attracted to do that very thing. If you, we go back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve, of all the trees in the garden, one tree, only one was not allowed, and that was the one they got into trouble with. If you're a parent, you understand that the guaranteed way to get your child to do something is to tell them they're not allowed to do that thing. Whatever you do, do not touch this. And all of a sudden, because you've made that prohibition, that child has an inbuilt attraction to want to know why you don't want them to do that. What is it about that that you're trying to keep them from? And you, you tell them, don't touch the hot stove. And they become fascinated by the hot stove. There's just something in human nature that even when we are told this is not good, we don't run from it. We actually are drawn towards it. And we can all testify to that in varying degrees in our own lives. Amen. And Paul said, he went on to say, using that same example of the covenant relationship in a marriage, he said that if a married woman or a husband, and in his writings he says woman, leaves her husband and marries another man, it is sin. It's adultery. He said, but however, if the man dies, then the covenant is finished and the woman is allowed to get married again. Paul took the time to show us with that example that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. And so he was the one who was in covenant with Israel. He was the one that was in that binding relationship with Israel. But when he died on the cross, the covenant was finished. Just like if a husband died, the wife is free to remarry. Jesus, the giver of the covenant with the people of Israel, died on the cross. The covenant is finished. Okay? So he was then, because he rose again, he was then able to introduce a new covenant, a new relationship for mankind to have with God. So that, that's where it goes an extra step. If the husband dies, that's usually the end of it. But Jesus died, took care of an old covenant, rose again and became able to introduce a new covenant. That's what's so awesome about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, you and I, at least as far as we know, most of us that I know are not naturally Israelites. We're not Jews. We are not in the same Old Testament covenant with God that the nation of Israel was. But just as the law of God identified sin for them, it identifies sin for us, and it reveals to us that we have all sinned. Romans 3.23, that's not on my slides, but it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So in our natural state, we are going to read some scripture in a minute, but you'll thank me we didn't read three chapters. In our natural state, we are all bound or locked together with sin. It is a law that is in our lives that we cannot change in our own strength. Just like the prophet said, even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. Natural strength is not going to cut it. But when we repent of our sins, 
The death of Jesus has made it possible for us to die to our old life and enter a new relationship with Jesus, which is why the church is described as being the bride of Christ or married to Jesus. I hope that makes sense. Amen. With that as a little bit of a platform, Romans chapter 7 and starting at verse 18. We'll read a bit, then pause, and then we'll read the rest. Paul said, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not. It's a bit of a tongue twist of this passage. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth or lives in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now, we could spend a lot of time in this passage, but just to pick out some points. Firstly, Paul identifies that in his natural sinful nature there is no good thing. You might not like to think that way about yourself and myself, but in our natural sinful condition there is no good thing, nothing that is good in the sight of God. We might be good people in the sight of society and community, but in in a spiritual sense, in our natural man, there is no good thing. He says, Paul goes on to say that even though he is aware in his mind what God desires from him, he knows the things that God would like him to do, and even though he may actually want to do those good things, there is a battle that is going on within him. There is a a war. You need to understand, if you plan on serving God, you're in a battle. You're in a battle. Amen. He says there's a battle that goes on within him. He said there is a law of sin that in his natural man he is subject to. He is dictated to by that law of sin. He doesn't have his own strength at this point to be able to deal with that. This passage is not particularly encouraging by itself. But fortunately it doesn't actually stop there, so neither should we. If we ignore the chapter division and read on into chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, it says, There is therefore... Now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be, excuse me, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity or strong opposition or hatred against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. 
So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you know what that verse tells me? That tells me that even if you are a good person, in man's measurements, you can't please God. Because people think, well, God knows my heart. I'm a good person. I help old ladies cross the street. I don't shoot the neighbor's dog when it barks at 2 o'clock in the morning. So therefore, I'm a good person. But the scripture says that if you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of Christ dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, and the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or shall also make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth or lives in you. One thing we can very quickly understand from this passage is that it is so important to be filled with the Holy Ghost. It is so important that we are filled with the Spirit of God. We must be filled with the Spirit of God as the Scripture says. It's the same Spirit that caused Jesus to come out of the grave. It's the same Spirit that will quicken us, that will give us life now, but also when the trumpet sounds and we go to be with the Lord. If you do not have the Holy Ghost, you need to thirst for it. It's not enough just to have head knowledge. There needs to be something in us. Jesus said, if any man thirst, there was a condition. There's got to be a desire. We've got to read the scripture, put aside our own understanding and let the word of God talk to us. We must have the Holy Ghost. Paul made it clear that our natural man can't do it. It can't please God. We are not able to please God in the flesh. He said that we, we were locked in a carnal mind, which opposes God constantly so that even if you tried you can't please God again pretty serious but there's another law there's another law the law the law of God showed us what was right the law of sin and death held us captive because we sin but the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus can set us free from the law of sin and death That's important to understand. It doesn't stop with the, oh, wretched man that I am. There is another law that is provided that can set us free from a law that previously had us bound. Now, let me bring that back, if I can, to learning to fly, and hopefully that will make sense. If it doesn't, come talk to me afterwards. We all understand, at least at some level, that there is a law of gravity. We may not understand the science of it all. I certainly don't know a lot about the science, but we all understand that things fall to the ground. They don't fall away from the ground. None of us are ever worried that if we jump as high as we can, that there's a risk we might float away. When you take your kids to the park, you should keep an eye on them, but you're not worried that while you're not looking, they'll just float off up into the clouds because gravity keeps us on the ground. We're pretty sure that what goes up must come down. It's the law of gravity. We're all subject to it. Nobody gets to take a pass on gravity and just say, no, I'm not interested in gravity and don't tick that box. It's the reason that although we live in the southern hemisphere on the bottom of the earth, we don't fall off. Kind of glad for that. Now, after the resurrection, Jesus was able to do some things that science said shouldn't be possible. One, he appeared in a locked room without opening a door or a window. Just He was there. 
but he was in the flesh. And then in Acts chapter 1, the Bible says that he ascended into heaven while they watched him. And when he returns, we are going to do something very similar, the Bible says, and meet him in the air. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Amen. But for now, the law of gravity applies. It's there. You drop something, it falls. But there is another law, and that's the law of lift. The law of lift. When an airplane is designed the right way, and I don't understand all of that engineering, but when it has the correct shapes and the, the wings have the right curves and all those bits and pieces, and there is enough power coming from the engines, the law of lift enables an aircraft to overcome the law of gravity. It's able to get up and fly. You and I get into planes that have hundreds of passengers, all their luggage, they weigh thousands of kilograms, and somehow, because of the law of lift, it can stay in the sky and get you to your destination. That's quite incredible when you think about it. The weight of an aeroplane, particularly a full aeroplane with everybody's bags and everything else, all the food they have to feed you and all the other bits and pieces, is incredibly heavy. And yet somehow you stand out in the car park and we look up and we see planes flying over in the sky. Because the law of lift, when the conditions are met, is able to overcome the law of gravity. I've got to be careful. I know there's at least one pilot in the building. So I'm going to stay away from the technical side of it. Amen. But it's quite amazing, really, when we think about that. When we went to Botswana a couple of years ago, we flew out of Sydney to Johannesburg, and the flight actually goes south out of Sydney and uses the curve of the earth to come up to southern Africa. And you actually get to look out the plane and see Antarctica. I had to keep trying to stop my brain from thinking, are we not flying upside down, flying under the... Too scary to think about. Just got this idea of the plane falling off and disappearing into space. But fortunately, that didn't happen. Amen. It's quite amazing, really, when you think about flight. And in a spiritual sense, you and I were not designed to be held to the ground by the law of sin and death. We were designed to be the image of God. That was our original design. Just as an aircraft has to be designed in a certain fashion for it to be able to achieve flight, we were designed in a certain fashion to achieve spiritual victory with the Lord. But sin took that design and it corrupted it and it limited it. You imagine, this, this might seem humorous, but imagine if, if we looked at and planes were being driven around the streets. And just Boeing 737 just going on down Cassowary Street, knocking everything over with its wings as it goes along. And we thought that was how they were meant to function. And then somebody comes along and says, actually, they were designed to fly, to be up in the sky. Now, our first reaction might be, they're a little bit crazy. But if you give that opportunity, you can find out that that's what his design purpose was. And the message of the gospel is that you and I were not designed to be held on the ground by sin and death, but that we were created to have power to experience the heights of a relationship with God. And there is a law that gives spiritual power and life through Jesus. It's the law of the spirit of life through Jesus Christ, which is able to overcome the law of sin and death. Just like the law of lift is able in the right conditions to overcome the law of gravity, so the law of the spirit of God is able to overcome sin and death in our lives. Amen. And again, with taking a risk of getting the science wrong, at a basic level, 
a plane needs two things to keep flying. A source of power, engines, fuel, and somewhat less exciting, maintenance, parts and repairs. Even if you could refuel in midair, sooner or later you're going to have a problem with the machinery. It's got to have a service. It's got to have bits and pieces replaced. I'm glad that we have our planes checked and serviced. I don't want to be in a plane when it's fallen out of the sky. And as believers, we need the same two things. We need a power source. We need a power source. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Amen. And we need maintenance. We need spiritual disciplines. We need to be people who pray, people who are in the Word of God, people who fast, people who fellowship. Now, fellowship doesn't mean sitting around watching a movie, but encouraging one another spiritually. We need to be in the house of God. Those things are maintenance. We need the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost, you know, a move of the Spirit of God and an outpouring of the Holy Ghost is a powerful, exciting thing. Maintenance is not so exciting. The cold winter's morning when the alarm goes off and it's only a couple of degrees and it's raining and you know you need to get up to pray before you go to work. That's not exciting. But that's maintenance. You need that. You need that. Amen. We need that. Because the pilot in the air understands how important the engineer on the ground is. The power is exciting. But if you don't have maintenance, if you just go from power to power, something might fall off your aircraft. We learn to fly spiritually. We learn to walk with God. We grow. We learn. They don't take somebody, give them a basic flying lesson and say, there's a 747, have at it. There's a process. There's understanding that grows. It's the same spiritually as it is naturally. We learn to walk with God. The Bible gives us the example of being spiritual infants, of when we're born again, how we begin a new life, of how we have to learn to walk. We start out on the things that are milk, the basic things, and we grow. Even Jesus, the Bible says, grew in wisdom and stature. There was growth that happened in Jesus Christ. Amen. And the Bible encourages us, to grow into spiritual maturity. Paul even went as far in some of his epistles to rebuke churches that were not as mature as they should have been. I think it was the Corinthians. He told them, by now I should be able to be bringing you some solid things, some things that take a bit of chewing and some teeth and some digestive abilities. He said, but you're still on the bottle. You're still drinking milk. He's saying you haven't grown. You haven't matured. Amen. We need to understand what spiritual maturity is. This is a part of being able to fly and keep flying and how it differs from natural maturity. In the natural, maturity happens physically. Our bodies grow, become stronger. Intellectually, we get education, we get knowledge, we get understanding, and our character grows, develops in relationships, in being able to endure hardship and have some resilience and dealing with conflict and having wisdom. There are things that should grow in our character as we mature. We, we expect different behaviors from 30-year-olds than we do from 3-year-olds. It's not just about how tall they are, but we expect character development. Some of these things apply spiritually as well. When we begin to walk with God, our knowledge and our understanding should increase. We should learn the Word of God. We should learn to understand more about God and what He says and how He works in us and through us. Those things should grow with time. 
our character should mature after the image of Jesus Christ. So Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is often connected to a tree's maturity. You don't normally, a fruit tree usually has a certain period of time before it's able to bear fruit. Naturally speaking, maturity also includes becoming independent, to care for yourself, to brush your own teeth. If you're 20 and mum's still brushing your teeth, you have a problem. You learn to dress yourself. You learn to feed yourself. As it goes further along, you learn to be able to perform tasks. Parents know what it's like to first get their kids involved in helping. It generally causes more work than it helps, but it's a part of the process. You let your kids in the kitchen for the first time. I, I, was, I was at Sister Bolette's house a few years ago, and her she asked me to bake something, and her three-year-old, I think she was granddaughter, decided to help me in the kitchen. Woo! We had flour everywhere. I don't know how much actually went in. I did measure it to start with, but after that, who knows what happened. But that's all part of growing and maturing. You get to a point where you're able to provide for and care for a family. Whether you're the mum or the dad, you're involved in that provision and that care. That's part of maturing. And society is impressed by independence, by capable people, people who don't need others to support them all the time. And as we grow spiritually... We should be able to function. We should be able to perform certain tasks. We should transition from milk to meat. But spiritual maturity, and I guess this is where we want to bring this to this morning, spiritual maturity is not recognized as independence. God does not look for us to become independent of him like we become independent of our natural parents. Now, I love my mother and father. I'm glad they're living in Perth. But I don't have to say to them, should I put the bin out today? What should we cook for dinner this week? When should I pay the bills? They raised me to be able to do that. You are supposed to become independent in the natural. But spiritually, independence from our Father is never the goal. It's never the goal. God is moved by our dependence upon Him. The things that we are able to do, who we become... What we're able to contribute to the kingdom of God are produced by depending upon Him. Not independence. We have to separate natural and spiritual here. Spiritual maturity develops in parallel with our recognition and understanding of our total dependence upon God. The power and discipline that you need to continue to fly only come from dependence upon Jesus Christ. Maturity is recognition of dependence, not becoming independence. And many of us struggle with that aspect of it. Amen. John 15, verses 1 to 5, Jesus said, I am the true vine. My Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. That's a mutual relationship. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. And then the last statement of verse 5 is, For without me you can do nothing. Not just a few things. 
or the basics, but without Jesus, you can do nothing. But, Pastor, I can still go to work. I can still do this. We're talking about spiritual maturity. The things that matter in the kingdom of God, without Him, you can do nothing. We have to learn to depend upon Jesus. We have to learn to acknowledge and to recognize how much we depend upon Jesus. Trying to be spiritually independent is actually pride. It's a statement that I don't need God. That's not true. And when we do that, Jesus will allow things to come into our lives to teach us to depend upon him. He will teach us that we need him for everything. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3. Jesus speaking, it says, And said, Verily or truly, I say unto you, Except, in other words, there's no other way to do this, Except you become converted, there's a change that happens, and become, that's a process, as little children. You shall not enter into the kingdom of God. So we are encouraged to become like little children. That sounds like reverse maturity in the natural. Sounds like some sort of miraculous anti-aging where we get younger rather than older. But that's not what it's talking about. Little children are totally dependent upon their parents for everything. Now, as they get older, they get some abilities. That's different. But it deliberately says little children. Infants are completely dependent upon mom and dad for every single part of their life. They do not contribute to the success of the house in any measurable way. They are completely dependent upon their parents. Being spiritually childlike is not the same as being immature. God wants our character to grow. He wants us to mature, but that only happens through dependence. You only mature the way God intends you to when you recognize it has to come from Him. I have to walk with Him and I have to depend upon Him. A little child, remember again, the example is an infant. A little child, as a, when you are their parent, they never worry about your ability to do what you say you can and will do. A one or two-year-old, when you say, I'm going to take care of this or I'm going to do that, I'm going to get you something to eat, a child never sits and thinks, no, I'm not sure that mum knows how to make a sandwich. I don't think dad can actually take care of that problem. I might have to step up and lend my assistance. An infant is totally dependent, totally for everything. And so when Jesus said, once we are converted, when there has been a change and a transition, we need to become as little children. It's kind of weird because on one hand, we want to mature. We want to transition from milk to meat, and the Lord wants us to do that. But we understand that's not counterproductive to remaining and becoming childlike. One actually produces the other. When I recognize I am completely dependent upon God for everything spiritually, I'm growing. I'm maturing because I'm seeing things differently. I'm understanding things differently. When, 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 you're, when you are a child and, and your, your mother or your father says something, it is without question. If they say this is right, this is wrong, this is what we're going to do, obviously as children get older they begin to question and challenge. That's a part of the developmental process. But an infant never questions. They may question your decision about what you give them, because if you let them have everything they want, most of it's going to be sugar. 
That's why you have to, as the parent, you have to guide. But they never wonder about your ability to take care of them. They just accept that if mum and dad said it, if they said they will take care of me, if they said they love me, if they said they would provide, if they said they will feed me and make sure I'm clothed and protected, it's done. So spiritual childlikeness, which is a part of spiritual maturity, even though that doesn't seem to go together, means that the word of God must be enough by itself. That the word of God is enough. That regardless of what I see, regardless of what I feel, regardless of what I go through, if my father said it, I'm dependent. If he said, I will keep you, he will keep me. If he said, I will provide for you, he will provide for me. If he said, I'll give you strength, he'll give me strength. If he said, my joy is going to give you strength, he'll give me that joy. If he said, his grace is sufficient, his grace is sufficient. But the problem is our natural mind looks at a situation, sees a problem, somehow tries to merge that with the word of God, which means, yes, God's word is true, but I need to do A, B, and C, otherwise the wheels are going to fall off. That's what happens naturally. But if we are becoming childlike, the word of God is enough. If dad said it, that's it. We become that infant. My father said, that's the end of the story. But we look for, you know, the little asterisks in the text. There's a bit down the bottom, except in certain circumstances, this will not be paid out, blah, 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 blah. That's what we do in the natural. But if God said, he's coming back, he's coming back. If God said, if you'll trust him, he'll never leave you, he won't leave you. That's what we have to learn to do is to grow up and become children. Proverbs chapter 3, many of you can quote it. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him. Get up each day and say, God, I depend on you to get anything done today. Anything done. If it's my job, you gave him the ability to do the job. If I'm ministering to somebody, God, it's got to be your anointing because if it just comes from me, it's, it's got nothing in it. Dependence. We don't like to be dependent. We want to be independent. You know, you meet people, they want to go find a property in the middle of whoop-whoop somewhere and grow their own food and have their own well and don't pay tax and just be a, a self-made man. That's flesh. God made you to be dependent on him and the things he put in your life. Look around this morning. God made you to be dependent on these people you're in church with. The word of God. Not my natural experiences. Not my family background or my family's behavior, or what I've been through, or what I'm going through, all of those things are real. But the Word of God is enough. The Word of God is enough. When we view the Scripture through natural experience, through family experience, through situations, we limit the power of the Word of God. We put a cap on it. That's why when Jesus gave us the model for prayer, He said, Our Father, which art in heaven, he didn't say, he could have said, Lord of the universe, creator of all things, the eternal immortal God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, 
the great I am, the ancient of days. He could have used any title, but he said, our Father, which art in heaven. And then he went on to say, don't lead us into temptation. Give us our daily bread. He asked for things. You know, kids ask for a lot of stuff. Kids ask, you take your kids to the supermarket, they want everything. Until you teach them, stop asking me, I'm going to run over you with the trolley. No, I didn't actually ever say that. But you know how it is as a parent. It's like, you know, I see it. You go to the checkout. You're there behind the lady in front. He's got the kid there and anything they can reach, they're putting in the trolley. They need that Mars bar. It is a matter of life and death. Kids are always asking for things. And you know what? They know you can do it. They don't doubt that you're able to provide. Our Father, which art in heaven, the Word of God is enough. The Word of God is enough. That's why, that's why you need to know the Word of God. We're living in an age, God is really dealing with me about this and the direction of this church in the future, but we're in an age where there's a lot of loose Christian concepts that are tied into humanism and philosophy and they put the name of Jesus or God on it and it just sounds nice. We need to know what the Word of God says. We need to be able to say, My Father said... Not, well, yeah, I've got this idea. There's a lot of things being attributed to God that he had nothing to do with. The Word of God is enough. The Word of God is enough. YouTube will mess with your head. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you do not know what the preacher on YouTube stands for, if you don't know what their doctrinal platform is, do not watch it. That's harsh. Yep. The Word of God is enough. If I know that somebody's preaching, and I know, I know the Bible says to know them that labor among you. What that means is you need to know who it is you're listening to. Just because they're a gifted speaker doesn't mean they're speaking truth. Know the Word. The Word of God is enough. He is our Heavenly Father. Now, when we talk about God being our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that there are people whose relationships with their natural fathers haven't been great. Parents could have been absent completely. Parents could have been a terrible parent. People go through abuse and all kinds of things. That doesn't change the fact that the Word of God is enough. It, it doesn't make light of anybody's situation. Don't ever want to do that. But it does, when the Word of God says that, He is your Heavenly Father. He said in one of the Gospels, He said, If you being evil, He wasn't saying we're all evil, He was comparing, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more? Shall God give the Spirit to them that ask Him? Our Father, which art in heaven, I am totally dependent upon you. Lead me. Provide for me. Protect me. Watch over me. Finished. 100% dependence. Let's stand together this morning.